0: Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. We need leadership in this country, leadership that doesn't pander to short-term gains for re-election, leadership that doesn't aggravate issues into crises in order to sow pandemonium and polarity. Leadership that brings the lived experience of affected people into the room. Leadership that is data driven and utilizes expert opinion and leadership that displays civility, compassion, the courage to make unpopular decisions for long term over short term gain and leadership that builds consensus. We also need to regain our own agency and not merely look to our leaders to rediscover and harness our own compassion and our ability to communicate, connect, and build consensus. The first step in regaining our own agency is to understand that we have it. Shannon A. Mullen's book, In Other Words, Leadership, is a true story of one main mother, Ashira Knapp, writing to Governor Janet Mills and providing the governor with not only visibility into how the pandemic and the lockdowns affected Ashira and her family, but in providing support for Governor Mills as she navigated difficult and unpopular decisions. This beautifully written book is more than the story of the pandemic, more than the story of the continued social and environmental crises we face. Climate change, drug addiction, systemic racism, the public health crisis, mass shootings, Rampant inequality, to name a few. More than the story of the power and honesty of letter writing, more than our democracy. It is a book that celebrates our common humanity and the agency we have in connecting with each other. It is a book that impels you to pick up the pen. I spoke to Shannon A. Mullen on her book, In Other Words Leadership, in the midst of an East Coast tempest in December. Welcome to Gravity Shannon. Thank you so much for having me. Well I am so grateful that uh, you're here to speak to me about your wonderful book In Other Words Leadership because I think it's so it isn't just such an interesting story about two women connecting um, but it's so important right now when our democracy is so uh, polarized and fractured. This is a story about hope about coming together, about being stronger in connection. And I think it's so important for everyone to read uh, right now. So I thought at first we might talk a little bit about the narrative and the setting and the colorful characters that you have, like Governor Janet Mills, who is, wow, I hope she runs for president. She seems so amazing. And then Ashira, (laughs) the school that her and her husband run. I want my boys to go there later. Resilience and uh, working with nature, mm-hmm. something we really need to get back to. And then Dr. Shah and his colorful portmanteaus, and it, we, you know, to be vacation land, we need to be vaccination land. And what was the story about the jalapeno
1: peppers? Can you remind me? <laughs> uh, yes. He's, he was trying to emphasize to people how vigorously they needed to wash their hands. And he said in one of his early briefings, the best way he'd seen this described was to think about. Uh, having just chopped a whole jar full of jalapeno peppers and then having to take your contact lenses out. <laughs> and it was, it was just so visceral. Everybody immediately nodded and thought, okay, okay, I get it. So then I really got to go like this. Right. So he made his point. I love what he said uh, about public health. He said, you know, it's important what you tell people, but it's more important what they do. So mm-hmm. you need to tell people what to do in a way that they remember and then go out and do in a way that sticks somehow in their mind. And I thought that was a perfect bet.
0: Yeah, and and Dr. Shah is known for his very Mm -hmm. lively impressions, right, Uh, and using uh, pop culture in uh, his public health announcements. If we really want people to understand um, epidemiology, we have to communicate it in a way that um, impresses upon them not just through statistics and uh, you know belabored language, but really lively impressions. Like, for instance, jalapeno peppers when you're washing your hands. Oh, you don't want that in your, <laughs> you don't want that in your eyes. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So you
1: see what I mean? Yes. Perfect example. A
0: little yep. less abstract, right? Than um, what a vector is, and so forth. A little less boring. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: And there are, I think there are more demands on people's attention than possibly ever before in human history. So you're competing with all of that to try to get them to remember what to do. Uh, so, you know, and that's part of, I think, one of, the, one of the lessons to take forward from this pandemic, because as he has said since then, there will be another one. We don't know when. There will be another one. And now we have a modern template for how to respond to it, you know, and the benefit of hindsight as well, which we did not have at the time. That was one of the extraordinary uh, challenges in writing this book was we'd learned so much and I didn't want to write it with hindsight. So in a sense, I had to reset my own memory and go back to the beginning. And I wrote it in chronological order in part for that reason yeah. so that I could re-experience all of it as we were experiencing it. And one month at a time, I would do the research and then write the chapter. Then I would go ahead and do the research and write the chapter. So that you know, I, it was really important if it was going to stand as a work of posterity. In addition to being a compelling story narrative, as you said, it it needed not to benefit from everything that we'd learned since.
0: Yeah, and we had the pandemic of nineteen nineteen, and we had some lockdowns uh, during that time. And we knew that even without commercial air travel at the time that um, 60 million people died. And so we knew we knew how virulent um, a pandemic can be, but uh, you're right, there was no playbook. Absolutely no playbook. And, As the uh, governor
1: said, yes. And that yes. kind
0: of defines the crises, right? That you're time-pressed to make decisions and that you have competing interests. You just have to uh, go. And I think the the wonderful and inspiring thing about, um, this book is how we see the pandemic's effect on a young mother and how she's, uh, homeschooling her kids and teaching her kids about everything that's going on, including climate change and the polarization of our society, trying to be kind to people and connecting with people and teaching them critical thinking, which, Is something that, you know, instead of teaching rote learning, critical thinking is probably the most important thing that you can teach your kids. Um, And then you have Governor Mills, who's um, looking after a whole state and having to deal with decisions there with no playbook. And I remember the thing that I, that I mean, it was tragic, but it was also funny when she called for advice. And that's a great thing for, you know, a leader to (laughs) call for advice. And she called a former governor and he said, well, you know, what you have to do, governor, is you have to go out and kiss the people.
1: <laughs> Hug the people, yes. Hug the
0: people. Let them
1: see you. You know, get out there and mix with your constituents. <laughs> yeah. And, and she said, Angus, it's a damn pandemic. I can't. <laughs> you know, and, then, and that same story, another great example of what we didn't know. Uh, she, To your point, yes, the governor of Maine, when she, uh, when she first issued um, a state of civil emergency, it didn't feel right um to her. This is for the benefit of any of your listeners who haven't read the book. And um and that was not you don't run for governor to do things like that. You don't run for governor to shut down your state and cancel people's livelihoods and keep them off of beaches and shut down weddings in bar mitzvahs etc, cetera, etc. I've heard her say that I don't know how many times. Uh so she it didn't feel right and she called several former governors uh and a current one of our current US senators, Angus King, um, he was a uh, he was governor of Maine. Uh, I forget the exact years of his tenure, but two terms. And so she called him out, their friends. He was quarantining, and and uh, she wanted to know if he'd ever shut down the state before or issued an order of state of civil emergency. And he said, yes, I have. After the first three hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> Angus said, Yes, I have. And he said, The great ice storm of 1998 for three whole days. <laughs> And they both kind of went, yeah, three days, wow, yeah. And we laugh about that now, right? I mean, three whole days, that sounds quaint. But again, I think it's a great example of how little we knew. We had no idea how long those lockdowns were going to go on, how long we would need to be wearing. We we weren't even really wearing masks yet at that time. It was the earliest weeks, So, yeah. No,
0: I yeah, and we didn't know how – we didn't know anything about the disease. I mean – it was really
1: transmissibility, nothing.
0: An yeah. anxious, anxious time. I remember that my mum who lives two blocks away would come down um to see us but would have the windows closed. She'd be outside and we'd be saying hello through the window. Yeah. <laughs> She was, you
1: remember washing food, bringing yes, home the food from yes. the grocery store and washing off the food? Yeah, like really with, you know, oh gosh, yes. Yeah, because we, we didn't things. know.
0: We we didn't know what was going on and, um, and no, we didn't, we didn't and even we have go, our bubbles in then, our, then, you know.
1: Um, No, we didn't. Yeah. And think of all the words that we got out of the pandemic, you know, that we didn't, we know, flattening the curve and zoom <laughs> and, you know, six feet and all these terms that came out of it, that we, you know, this whole dictionary of pandemic language. Social distancing. Built <laughs> social distancing. I remember when I was like, what is social distancing? And it, it, just, it sounds like anathema to me. I'm an extrovert. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: one thing that um, well it strikes you immediately when you um, read the book is that uh, we live in a time when a lot of us are on social media and we live very active digital lives and some people live particularly the younger generations maybe even more substantive digital lives the phones like another appendage etc etc and yet here we are we have um, letter writing we have pen pals and I find that so heartwarming because even though, for instance, my handwriting as much as I love to write letters, uh, no one can read them. So, <laughs> they're uh, indis- <laughs> indecipherable uh, <laughs> abstract work. But um, when when people do have uh, the art of penmanship and they can write, it's it's so um, it feels more heart. Warming and it connects people. The letter writing—it's personal. It's um, it's more open. And yet, we live in a society where everyone's out, everyone's talking to each other from all corners of the world. And yet,
1: instead of connecting, it's really divided us. I think it's interesting to contemplate that question. uh, You know, amidst the proliferation of social media, where does what place does letter writing have in our society? I was more, I think this set off my bells a bit because I'm a letter writer uh, and I, and I think that's an art. I think the act of writing letters really sharpens your thoughts. It brings you closer to the truth of what you want to say. I do think it's a more heartfelt medium. I've been exchanging letters with one of my oldest friends since we were teenagers and we're in our early forties now. uh, And we got together when we turned 40 and read each other those letters. Mm -hmm. And they're, so in addition to the fact that they, they sort of bring you into uh, a more thoughtful place when you sit to write them, you then have them to read later. Yeah. And a, and a physical object if you keep them. And I think, you know, text messages and emails are just getting archived. And I think it's going to be, it's either going to make it easier or harder for historians and writers in the future to find people's thoughts and records of this time because we have so much electronic stuff that we're exchanging all of the time and so quickly and with less thought. Um, In terms of the letters that are at the heart of this book, uh, so the book is about a young woman, a young mother in central Maine who sent a weekly handwritten letter of support to the governor of Maine for the first year of the pandemic. And uh, I have asked her that question. Why did you, when I first interviewed her, I asked her, why did you write by hand? And she she had a couple of answers to that. One, like me, she'd always been a letter writer. And two, they live off the grid. And I mean off the grid. So the process of getting online is just that, a a complicated multi-step process where, you know, getting the computer, turning on the power supply, getting the computer down from the shelf, connecting to the internet by a very old-fashioned connection, all of that takes, you know, like several minutes. And so she doesn't do that very often. Also, she felt that uh, she could work on the letters sort of anytime, anywhere. Uh, and like, for example, she'd take her kids to the swimming hole for socially distanced outdoor activities, and she would sit under a tree while they were swimming and write to the governor. So it was kind of something she could do at her leisure. And, I, and, I, and another thing I learned in the process of this, um, on the other end of the communication, at the governor's end, the woman whose job it was to screen the mail that came in through the governor's office at that time, her name was Martha Courier. She told me that uh, m- most of the emails that the governor's office receives um, are sort of shorter, and in terms when people are sharing feedback about, their, you know, how they feel about the administration, that's where most of the negative comments come is via mm-hmm. email. Versus the handwritten letters and cards, which tend to be more positive, more heartfelt, more thoughtful. Because, again, that medium really does kind of force you into that zone, out of your head, out of what else you're doing, out of whatever else is flickering at you on your phone. You just have a piece of paper and a pen. So, um, you know, I, as far as the connection between that and what has happened in our society, I'm not sure. I'd be interested in talking to philosophers and psychologists about that. I don't think it's helped. Hmm. I'll say that. I don't think it's helped um, in terms of specifically in terms of the, the polar- polarization of our yeah. society uh, and the division, divisions. Um, the ways in which that's changing people's behavior patterns, I haven't studied that, so I can't define. But I think there are ways social media does facilitate connection. In this particular regard, I think letters remain a singular singular medium for making connection with others, especially strangers in this case.
0: Yeah. Sometimes you make a stronger connection when it's individual, right? Between two people writing letters than if you're just sending something Mm -hmm. out into the world. Um, It's a little more ephemeral that way. Uh, And uh, I do find that the other thing with social media, and I think with the increase in polarity in our society, is that um, you can't write a long letter, even if you type it out on social media. You know, you have... Uh, very limited
1: characters doesn't stop people from doing that.
0: <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. But the limited characters, I, I, I find, and again, I'm, I'm not an expert on the subject, but just when I ruminate on it, that it tends to make you more extreme because you have to condense your thoughts, and so by condensing them, you can't really look at all the nuances, um, and so it tends to be more manikian.
1: Well, I think another thing that feeds into that is that it's instant. Yeah, and you know, I have a background as a film producer, and uh, a, a former partner of mine on a project. Um, he once told me, you know, this is a charged in- in industry. People feel passionately about the projects we're doing. You should, if, if you have something to say to someone, you should you should never say it immediately. You should you should never say it in a text message. You should say it in person if you possibly can. And if you write it by email, wait at least a day. Yeah. And I think that's the problem with these mediums. You know, we hold these phones in our hand, and we have the have it right in our hand. It's like, it's like a weapon. You can shoot back hurtful words without thought so easily without effort. And it's the damage is done. So I think that's another risk of that medium versus think about letters, you know, you have to sit down and write it and then then you have to look at it. And then if you like it, you seal it in an envelope and then you take the envelope to the post office and anywhere along the way, you might change your mind and take it back. Yep. You know, the closest thing we have to the send button is when you drop it into the mail slot <laughs> yeah. and you have a long time between that. So I think that's just, you know, one more factor in, 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 in what it is about digital communication that makes it such a fraught medium and also probably feeds into uh, what people perceive to be more divided times than ever. Yeah, I agree. I'm not convinced of that, by the way.
0: I think I definitely I'm, think it's a pertinent element that it's so instantaneous. And
1: no, I mean I'm not convinced that we are divided as divided as we've been told. Ah, in fact, yes. I, I for the first time in my career I wrote a piece of opinion and, and, an op-ed. You know, I'm on the fence about whether there's such a thing as opinion journalism. <laughs> but I but I wrote a I wrote an op-ed about a, about American agency, and my argument was that we've been told how divided we are. And I don't think we are as divided as we've been told. So.
0: Oh, I'm intrigued by that. <laughs> and that is something that I would love to hear that we aren't as divided because yeah, that's right. What you see in particularly, um, some embarrassing instances in Congress, I think <laughs> where we see hyper partisanship and increasing divisions, uh, I'd love to hear that we're not as divided, and really we shouldn't be because
1: we're stronger together. Well, I think there have been efforts to quantify, uh, you know, polls and studies and things like that, how divided society is and what the what the various indicators are that we have. I'm a journalist. I can I can really talk about the factors I've observed and/or that I've reported on and done research into, uh, and I would say based on the last several years of my observation. I think that we have been told uh, ad infinitum how divided we are by an increasingly polarized and inflammatory media yeah. milieu, if you will. Um, I think the advent of the 24-hour news cycle, which I remember at the very, very beginning of that in, 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 in uh, the Iraq war a long time ago when my sixth grade teacher wheeled a, a CNN on TV into our classroom, and there they were broadcasting 24. 24- I remember that. Uh, but you know, these days we have to fill the air with something and very little of it is objective journalism. Mm. When I was growing up, we you know, I remember sitting in the kitchen with the, with my parents. My de- you know, my, my parents watching their their one time a day newscast from Tom Brokaw or Peter Jennings or Dan Rather, all guys. <laughs> sometimes Barbara Walters or Diane Sawyer or Judy Woodruff, but <laughs> one person once a day. Yeah. You know, and now we have information coming at us all day long, not curated by experienced, trained professional journalists who, who, whose job it is to parse facts and opinions and offer you the former and let you form the latter. Yeah. We now have this noise machine and people are busy. And so we just, I think we feel firehosed by information and there, you end up getting the perception of division that's fed by all of that, depending on how well you curate your own selection. And I think people are filling their news feeds with things they want to hear at an unprecedented to an unprecedented degree. So I think all of that feeds into the perception people develop that things maybe things really are as bad as they keep incessantly telling us it's this is not to say that there are not grave forces at play in terms of financial interests in our politics in terms of the, the 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 forces of bigotry uh you know just to name a few the the very real factors that are pushing and pulling at our society and our democracy those are very serious i'm not negating any of that i think just in terms of our exposure, the amount of it, uh, and, the, and the different mediums that it, in which it comes at us, that's unprecedented. And I think compared with however many years ago, you know, for example, if you look back at the 60s, I'm amazed at how many people I know and love who lived through that time. You know, uh, coming out of Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis and going into the assassination of an American president. And then his brother and the greatest civil rights leader our country has known. And Vietnam War, I mean, that was, talk about a fraught time. And those people think this is worse. So many of them. And I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but I find that really interesting because they got news, you know, in newspapers or maybe once a day from Morrow back then. And now we have all the time, all the time, all the time. May, yeah, so that's in, an interesting that's point. part of my theory. About how we got here
0: in the book, Ashira's dad, when she asked him, "Well, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when did you feel so much tension <laughs> Has in it society? Ever been <laughs> Has it ever been worse?" and and he said, "Oh, when Trump was elected." Nope. She's like, "Well, that's <laughs> <Exactly>. not
1: scary." <laughs> Great. thanks, Dad. Yes, I remember her saying that. Yes, yeah, because she thought, "Okay." And that is not the whole story. I just want to make clear: I don't think that's the only problem we're facing right now, but I think it's a big problem. And I am a member of the media. I consider myself a professional journalist, and I think we are a huge and growing part of this problem. I was just um, listened in on a a lecture uh, by a doctor at Mass General Hospital the other night, uh, which has started a gun violence prevention program, and she she lost a nephew in the Sandy Hook shooting Mm. and has dedicated her entire career to trying to help fight gun violence. She views it as a solvable problem. I thought that was a sort of a radical thing to say these days. And one of the things she's done is work with Emerson College in Boston to develop a um, a new training program for journalists and how to cover gun violence. Being a member of the media, it's, it's an extraordinary responsibility. And I don't think enough people look at it that way. They should be teaching media law and ethics more stringently. That's true. They (laughs) should
0: be teaching media law and ethics to journalists. I do think that that's actually pertinent. We don't get bare facts, really. Everybody tries to persuade you one way or another. For instance, I can say, hey, there's this person that's been um, a public servant for three decades. Well, I can also say... Exactly the same fact. They've been a career politician for three decades. You know, one is pejorative. One is uh, you make it seem like the person should be venerated. Again, that's basic
1: journalism, right? Stay out of the story and don't use charged language. Yeah. Stick to the facts. But again, then you get into another sort of gray area about what are the facts. And we have too many, almost too many voices stepping into the media landscape that I think they're failing in one major way. They're failing to characterize themselves. And in this, in this sense, teaching media literacy at the younger level is very important. They fail to characterize that what you are about to hear is opinion. Yeah. You know, I wish there was a disclaimer at the beginning. This isn't going to work in the society that, in which we live now. But yeah. in, a, in a perfect world, there'd be a disclaimer where you got on the air and you said, you're about to hear a bunch of people talking about stuff and it's their opinions. After this, you should go and look these things up and decide what you think for yourself. Yep right yeah so and that seems i would think that's common sense but i guess not and maybe common sense isn't so common <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's an issue i have and i think anyone teaching the current generation i mean how do you tiktok is media mm-hmm. how do you are you supposed to start teaching kids about tiktok as part of media literacy
0: yeah you know
1: i mean alongside teaching them what the new york times is and how you know i mean i ugh. We digress. No, no, we digress.
0: (laughs) But actually, um, going back to your book, you weave in a bunch of other public crises and social issues. And one is the continued uh, prevalence of sexism and the Andrew centricity of our society uh, still to this day in 2023. Um, And Governor Mills has to face and and face throughout her career sexism. And she's not alone. And speaking about that narrative, men are passionate, women are emotional, men are assertive, women are aggressive. We get different adjectives. And you you mentioned that Governor Mills, she's dealt with sexism so long, it doesn't, um, it, she doesn't find it suffocating anymore. She knows how to navigate it. What did she say? She, she said, I love the phrase, like, loud men talking tough as a barrier to their weakness.
1: Uh, yes, that was a comment in response to President Trump making really incendiary remarks and calling her a dictator. And she had asked him to come to, if he, if he was going to come to Maine, that, that he leave the divisive language at the door. Uh, she said, I spent my career listening to loud men talk tough. And she said, I care about what you're going to do for Maine, and that's not very much I think it's not necessarily that she doesn't find it suffocating. Um, I I wouldn't say that I couldn't speak for her, but what she she just doesn't, she just doesn't stop at that. She's encountered it all her career, but she hasn't made it an issue of her, of her work. Mm. Uh, And she hasn't let it make an issue of her. Um, I mean, I was, and it takes it takes a sort of a certain kind of person to respond to it that way. Um, a great example is that she, you know, when she was a district attorney, you know, she would be asked, what's it like to be a female DA? And her answer was, I don't know. I've never been a male DA. What a <laughs> stupid question. Right? But that, in some ways, that's a really good example for where we are right now. You know, I think we need, we need to, kind of turn those questions over and turn them around so that we realize that they're sort of questions to ask, that they're not, that they, what they, what they end up doing is revealing something for us to work on as a society. And I wish people could respond with a bit more compassion and a little less um, knee jerk uh, consternation for those kinds of opportunities. So, and she's handled it that way. She sort of turned it back on them so that they kind of go, Right. Okay. All right. <laughs> you know, and that sort of dispenses with the question. But that's a long work in progress. Uh, mm-hmm. she, she doesn't dwell on her gender. She focuses on what she's been elected to do, which is be a leader and do the job of running the state of Maine. And she did that when she was attorney general. She did it when she was district attorney. You know, she, has, she did that when she was a prosecutor. She's done it her whole career. She's focused on the job at hand. One of the the notes you sent me and in your in the questions you the talking points you want to discuss was what is leadership? That's the third the third one I could say uh, we've mentioned today. Um, one of them was uh, I think the other two were, but you know that's just the most recent one. Oh, and one was making decisions without all the information. Mm. You know, making the best decision you can. Um, I think the title of the book came from a discussion with my sister, who was on a school board meeting. was on the school board in our hometown, and um, I I was looking for a title for the book and I was really struggling and I had like four hours left to pick one. And I called my sister and I said, talk to me about, you know, the pandemic and and being on the school board during the pandemic and, you know, at a much smaller level, a bit like being a governor in a state where people disagree with you. And she said, yeah, you know, we just had a meeting last night and I had this one father and and he was, you know, there was his talking about his kid, my kid, this, I don't want my kid to do that. And there are just some people who can't make decisions for others. Mm. And I, I said, oh, in other words, leadership. And I went, where did I hear that? And the governor had used that phrase in her final, her, her response to appear as final letter. She would thanked her for all the things she'd done in her own community and for supporting her through the pandemic, in other words, leadership. So it was a perfect title. But that's one of the things I would put on that list. You know, making the best decisions for the most people as opposed to self-interested or protecting certain interest groups you know, or making decisions that benefit you politically. Yes, you know, This governor made, as I, as I said in one of my earlier interviews, uh, a marathon of politically unpopular decisions and was reelected by a historic margin. Yeah. That's a lesson for our times, if I've ever heard one. So that is one of the reasons I wrote this book, was to amplify the reach of that lesson. That you leadership isn't about popularity. It's not about making decisions that make others happy or make them like you. Or make them vote for you again. Leadership is a burden. Yeah. It is a tremendous burden. And we, I think that what I hoped the pandemic would do, you know, we've never had an instance where the governors of, the, of this country had so much of their power in play for so long with such grave stakes. Yeah. And it drew a lot of attention to the role of governors, the often unsung role of the job of the people who run these, the 50 states. And I think it gave us a lot of cause to consider what we want in our elected leaders. And I don't know if people had time to stop and think about that. Mm -hmm. And we have another election cycle coming up. So I think the book, I know the book. I wrote the book to be a study of leadership, as Senator King earlier we were talking about. Angus King, as he said, it was. He said it's a portrait of leadership, and I don't. And I, you know, while it's an optimistic portrait, it's um, it's not idealistic necessarily. <laughs> it's you know because it talks it talks about those decisions she had to make in a really really difficult time. So. Yeah. There
0: we are. I also think what makes a great leader is caring for people and empathy and compassion yeah, and compassion. Mm-hmm. And that is when you read the book. It's you have two characters there, one character, but you see two sides of the same char- of the one character. So there's Governor Mills and everything mm-hmm. that she has to do, and then there's Janet. Who is Governor Mills? But she's a selenophile. I'm a selenophile too. I love it. You know, she she takes the time to uh, connect with nature. She she loves her people, she loves Maine, and um and she understands that she's making difficult decisions, but that someone has to do it. And she doesn't do it on her own. Even though nope. accused as a dictator, she had. A whole administration and she asked questions because as a leader Absolutely. you don't need to have all the answers but you do need to know what questions to ask and it seemed that she did um ask the right questions um and have really good people like Dr. Shah around her um that yes she, and Jean
1: Lambrew I might add uh, yes. it's extraordinary to me that right before this global pandemic this governor chose as her, um, as her CDC director and her top public health, her, her top cabinet official in the area of public health, to be two of the best possible people at those jobs that she could have chosen with the most experience. Uh, Jean Lambrew helped craft Obamacare, um, the Affordable Care Act under the Obama administration, and then ended up in the state of Maine as our top public health, well as that state's top public health officials. Uh, and then you had Dr. Shah, who had run a CDC in quite a big state and um, had, had left in a bit of, uh, amidst a bit of controversy. Um, there was a, an outbreak of Legionnaires disease there in a in, uh, senior care facility on his watch. And um, there was a debate about, it, about the cause. And so he came to Maine. There was a, quite a kerfuffle here about her decision to hire him. And he is now, the second in command at the United States CDC, after the leadership that he provided in the state of Michigan. So not only that, but her whole cabinet. I mean, she uh, and her cabinet is, is largely women. She has more women in her cabinet than any previous governor. There are nine of them, and she called them her kitchen cabinet. Yeah. It's quite a quite a tongue in cheek yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> moniker. But yeah, she had, she made a lot of extraordinary decisions in terms of who she surrounded herself with, which is a, another mark of great leadership for the list. Mm.
0: Yeah. And in, t- at the end of the book, I mean, another thing that I, that I find inspiring and I find this book so inspiring because I have to tell you, I've been so disappointed with the leadership of our country, the whole spectrum
1: I don't think you're alone.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, where's the civility and where's the, uh, the getting together and getting things done? I mean, that's, I don't know. Is that too much
1: to expect of a government? <laughs> well, it's, that's another aspect of why I chose the title. I feel like the phrase, in other words, leadership has been in the backs of so many of our minds. Mm. As we've watched on both sides of the aisle. Uh, you know, political partisanship hold up the governance of our country, I think people have been left thinking, why can't they, you know, deal with the debt ceiling? In other words, leadership, why can't they, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. You know, and I think that's the case at the public level too, in so many people's small towns. You know, I think I, there were countless examples of that during the pandemic, of people who had been elected to keep their neighborhoods safe, and they allowed their political views to cloud their judgment. And you had lives lost. Due to those some of those decisions at the local level, yeah. So I think that that goes not just at the top of our government, but all the. It's, I think it's it's part of the nature of of the political process. Unfortunately, uh, you know the 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 divisions of parties into their respective ideologies. Um, yeah. How can you govern without How can you govern without that? You know, disinterested leadership, people who, who can lead. In a disinterested way, and I don't mean uninterested I yeah. mean disinterested, not putting their own self-interest first, but the interest of others, that seems rare. I think so many people drawn to politics and to what it takes to get elected as a politician are are, are not necessarily disinterested people. you know yeah. I, one of the things i wanted to wanted to explore. Uh, and one of the reasons I reached out to Governor Patrick uh, to speak to your class was I was looking at the leadership pipeline in our country. Where are we training the next generation of true leaders who understand what that word means?
0: That mm. it is
1: not a popularity contest, and you don't seek political office, public office, as a public servant to serve your own views. Yeah, and you know that's.
0: And Governor Patrick <laughs> is another example. <laughs> of somebody that inspires, um, in leadership and that really cares for people. Um,
1: I like, think his, his compassion and his empathy are his greatest gifts as a politician. And yeah. I'm, I'm very pleased that he's, um, in the position that he's in where he is, um, I, I mean, sitting in, on your class, he had students of, of all sorts of political ideologies. I could tell Republicans, Democrats, independents, all in his class. And he asked equally thoughtful questions of all of them. Challenging questions, yeah. encouraging all of them, but to put partisanship aside and discuss leadership. You know that's the job of a place like the Kennedy School of Government, is to teach governance. That's one of one of the things I admire most about Janet Mills, is that she takes gravely seriously her responsibility to govern. One of her biggest criticisms of her predecessor Paula Page was that he spent so much of his energy and time not governing, in fact, obstructing governance. The man vetoed more pieces of legislation than all of the governors of the state of Maine previous to his administrations combined. So that's, that's not leadership. That's not governance. So I think that's another factor. Um, You know, people who, who seek office to advance their own agenda, that's the opposite of governance. Governance is keeping all of us safe. You know, that's, that's that's what Ashira was so grateful for that the governor was up there doing. Yep. Thank you for doing what 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 you were meant to do. Yeah. Keep us safe. So anyway, I'm up on a soapbox again.
0: <laughs> but it's so necessary to say these things, particularly right now in um our country and with the election coming up. Um and What's inspiring about your book, and why I think it's so pertinent right now for everyone to read it, not just Americans, because democracy is backsliding in um, all corners of the world, but uh, particularly for
1: us I'm not, you know I want to I jump in, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but um, I know that there are a lot of concerns that that's happening, but I also think it's reasonable to look at that in a different way that democracy is being tested. Mm. I think to call it backsliding, I'm not sure we know that. I think democracy is a work in progress. And that's exactly the kind, of dis- the kind of term that I hear being thrown around too casually in the media landscape. It's all backsliding. It's all falling apart. People pronouncing the end of everything when, when we don't know that. Yes, again, we are facing very serious challenges as a global society and as a society in this country and at a mm. smaller level in our individual even in the societies of our own families. Serious stuff at play. But that's the kind of language we I think we have to stop using. Mm. We have to stop you know proclaiming like the correction. end. The dark, I, I right? stand corrected.
0: <laughs> I stand corrected. We're being <laughs> tested, Alex. We are being tested. And yes, I should <laughs> it's not
1: the same thing as apocalypse.
0: <laughs> no, that you yeah, you're right. And one thing that I try to do with this podcast is always End on a positive note, even if we're looking at such pernicious issues, because my main nemesis is apathy. Because once we've given up,
1: it's... I think that's true. I I think that's uh, you know it's a, it's a great you give me a great opportunity to say, to, to echo something I read about Rachel Carson's work. Mm. You know Rachel Carson. Uh, uh-huh. Yes, of course. So I read something beautiful about her work. That uh, her work uh, that uh, that um, celebration is the greatest form of admonition of what we stand to lose. Rachel Carson celebrated what we have as the greatest form of admonition of what we stand to lose. And I absolutely took that spirit into the writing of this book. It was one of my driving forces for creating it. This book is a celebration. It's a celebration, first and foremost, of an example that as a journalist, I find extraordinary not just of Ashira's choice to use her own agency and act on the difference she felt she could make, believed she could make as just one person up against the great these, all these great uncertainties that are reshaping human existence. We talk ourselves out of acting too often. So it's a celebration of individual agency. Yeah. It's also a celebration of, of, of successful leadership. And I am not saying that because I think Janet Mills Democrat is better than all of Page Republican, her the metrics with which the state of Maine came through the pandemic were among the best in the nation, mm. and those are the met- metrics with which we are evaluating the performances of the governors of the state. Yeah, um, am- among the highest vaccination rate, among the lowest death rate, uh, among the lowest hospitalization rate, and this is in a state with the country's oldest population and one of its most rural.
0: Right. And the rural actually, it helps with social distancing, right? Because it's more difficult when people are together, but it also conversely um, hampers vaccination and access to healthcare. So in every respect, everything is more complicated than, oh, this is black and white. Yeah. Well, obviously it's easier for Maine or obviously (laughs) it's more difficult. It's it's both and it's neither.
1: Um, But what I love- You can't boil it down to 140 characters or less, as you pointed out earlier.
0: So when Governor Mills uh was voted back in and there was such rancor against her, she didn't sh- she didn't stoop down to that. She is she is governing for everybody, even people that don't vote for her. And um, no, maybe I should That's have absolutely quoted, I, I, right. I, I, too yeah. many earmarks in your sorry, I apologize for, <laughs> I'm an you earmark mine. person. Look at mine. Okay.
1: <laughs> And, and uh, my copy is dog-eared and notes all over the pages. Yeah, and I still <laughs> love
0: I'm a tactile person. I love the book, you know, I, I'm not a Kindle or you know electronic book person, but um,
1: it is a be- it's beautiful. I wanted it to feel different in your hands. I wanted everything about it to look different. I wanted you to wonder what the cover what, what, what am I looking at? It looks like it might be damaged. I'm not sure. Is that a scratch?: Yeah. <laughs> stamp on there. Like I wanted you to pick it up and go, what is it? And then you open it up and there are the letters on the right inside. Right. I mean, it's beautiful. You can see her handwriting and you kind of go, okay, okay. What is this? I need to read this by design. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And there is no partisanship on your part. Now, before you were talking about the need for journalists to offer a neutral perspective and your book is not neutral in the sense that it's optimistic, but Um, When you talk about politicians, you just lay out the facts. For instance, it piqued my interest that, um, is it Representative Timberlake? Yes, Jeff Timberlake. Jeff Timberlake.
1: (laughs) No, he actually made some pertinent points. Oh, Alex, you're the first person who's ever noticed this about the book. I put Senator Timberlake in this book. Because I had the the same impression of him and I put, I laced him throughout the entire book and I was, I'm so delighted you picked up on him. Yes. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Yeah. The other side of the aisle, he has some very pertinent points and he makes them civilly. He does. Perhaps the legislature... Should be more involved rather than the executive. But here is the thing that whenever we have more people in the kitchen, it takes a longer mm-hmm. time to cook anything. Mm-hmm. More cooks in the kitchen, more problems, etc. So that is, I think, that kind of defines a crisis, right? That you need to act quickly, and that therefore um, you might not go through all the uh, belabored democratic processes. Um, the question is, when do you give that power up? Um, and
1: yeah, that's something that, that wasn't really discussed. Uh, that was debated in all 50 states. Uh, I forget the exact statistics, but I did. I remember doing the research for that section uh, and I was fascinated by that, by the number of state legislatures who, who debated this in the first sessions after, you know, after we came back to starting to have in-person lawmaking at the state level. Uh, and in Maine, they were doing that with masks for a long time, as Senator Timberlake pointed out, they were so relieved to be back in person so that they could go out in the hall and work out differences. I remember the point in the story where he said, he started talking about how they were coming back to meeting in person again and um, learning to read each other's eyes behind their masks. And he had such a poignant comment about that. And I really appreciated that about him. And yes, you you mentioned his civility in particular, and that was something that... Uh, that I think we, got, we gained, but then we seem to have lost again in our politics. Uh, it was a really powerful example in so many ways, this pandemic, of, of the coming together that so many of us did at so many different levels of our society. In, in, in that case, you're talking about lawmakers on different sides of the aisle and their legislating was more civil for a while that seems to have broken down again, uh, just, just like um, another big theme in the book, I think our sense of our, as I said a few minutes ago, our own agency has broken down a bit in the face of great big uncertainties and unanswerable questions. We seem to have talked ourselves into believing we can't do anything about them. And I think that was a major factor in people's responses to things like vaccines and mask wearing. Mm. I think those were ways that you could take some power back or feel that you had some agency in the face of these great, big, unanswerable questions. And, and, and um, especially if you disagreed with how the pandemic was being managed, you could exercise some control by choosing not to wear a mask or choosing not to believe that uh, the pandemic was a real threat or choosing not to have a vaccine. Suddenly those were very visceral, immediate ways that people could say no and feel some control. Mm. Um, I was concerned very early on about about that aspect of the pandemic, that um, people were being asked to take precautions uh, as Senator King put it on the the abstract proposition that it was going to have a positive outcome for society. And in many cases, we were never going to know. But if you lost your bar, as he pointed out, because the governor closed down the state, you would know that. Right. And in some senses, I believe that's a really interesting difference in how the Democrats and the Republicans present themselves. I think so much of the Democratic Party's platform, you know, they'd only be proven correct if there was a- apocalypse. Mm. Right. I mean, nobody gets vaccinated. Huge Much higher numbers of people died. Oh, well, maybe they were right about those vaccines. But if you get a vaccination and, you know, you don't get sick, you don't have that sense of, well, that was the right thing to do. Yeah. So I think that was, that's a really particularly challenging aspect of this pandemic for the people who got us through it, who were in positions of authority and had to make those decisions about what to ask of us and people's responses in in a similar way that I feel has polarized the two political parties voting for a divisive leader. If that person lines up more with your ideology is an act. It is a thing you can go into a booth physically do and then see a result. Yeah. And I think that's taken on a, a lot more meaning for people. In the face of big, amorphous, scary threats, existential concerns like climate change, like social change, like what many people consider to be a dissolution of moral clarity, right? I mean, these are, these are big questions that people have. And when we have so many questions, where is our sense of control? How do we have a sense of what our part is in that? Mm. But I think people are, around us are increasingly looking for ways to exercise something, some control. I love the way Ashira chose to do it. Yeah. Here was a governor who was facing sustained criticism. And Ashira thought, well, I agree with you know, most of what she's doing. So I'm going to show sustained support. And she had no idea if it was going to mean anything. She was just one woman. She didn't mean, but she didn't wonder that. I mean, th- this is a funny story. Yeah. When I first called her, (laughs) I was going on and on and on, like I am with you about agency and, you know,
0: about all the
1: power that we have that we talk ourselves out of. And she had asked me why I wanted to write the book. And that was what I was telling her. I want to celebrate your act of extraordinary agency. And she goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) 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 And I... She said, don't you go characterizing me as some, you know, martyr out there consciously writing letters because I knew it would help. She said, I've been doing things like this all my life, and I've never known whether it helped. It's nice to hear that it did. Sure, go write your book. Just don't say that. Which just underscored my point. Mm -hmm. She didn't wonder whether she could make a difference. She just did. And it's such a powerful example of what might happen if we all do that. Well, so if now we I have a question. Opportunities. So I, go
0: on. I have many questions. <laughs> okay, let's have them. So uh, Maine <laughs> is not a particularly popular state comparatively to other states. For instance, my home state of California. Now, um, do you think Governor Newsom could uh, respond to all the letters because he's got forty times the population? That's what I wonder about. Or say no. uh, the mayor of New York. So at what point? No, I don't.
1: I don't think so. Um, yeah. Finish your question though. We're going back because I I want to hear that.
0: But I, (laughs) I love this. Participatory democracy is very visceral to my heart. And I think we need more active citizenship. And in fact, I sometimes ruminate on whether we should bring back national service, but not military service, but national service. Like maybe just three months, but working in the communities to bring us together. Maybe it's uh I don't know too Panglossian or Quixotic of me or something, <laughs> but um I love the idea that uh, you can tell your governor how their policies are affecting you, or even say the president. But then I think, well, if I write a letter, is Joe ever going to read it? And you understand the impediments in their way of um responding to you know, 330 million uh, pen pals. <laughs> There's just yeah. so many hours in a day, and yet. I do find if we're making policy, we need a combination of experts in the room, but we also need people. We need the lived experience of people actually affected by the policies because we're only human and even if we have interdisciplinary experts, we're going to have unintended consequences of our policies. That's just unfortunately how life works. And if we don't have the lived experience, um, we're going to miss out on um, the effects and um, exacerbate those unintended
1: consequences. Well, all the more reason for people to vote. I mean, that's one of the fundamental elements of our democracy. Go out and vote because it's a representative democracy. What we, in theory, then get is a politician who represents the people. And then what we, in theory, hope they'll do is govern in that way, in the interest of their constituents. That's the whole point, right? I mean, when you had... One person coming down from all of Maine on a horse <laughs> to Philadelphia yeah. to say, I, this, I absolutely know what my people up there in Maine. I mean, that's the whole, it was designed for that, to be a representative democracy. So in theory, that's how it's supposed to work. Um, yeah, does, it, it, does any politician have time to read every letter from every constituent? Absolutely not. Talk about idealistic. No. I mean, they all do it differently. I loved that uh, President Obama had one person in his office, you know, once the, I think it was that the amount of letters was filtered down and that he would receive 10 each day chosen by that, that woman. I remember reading a piece about her in Vanity Fair. And he would take 10 home with them every day, 10 every day. And so he knew he was never going to read them all, but he made time to read 10. And you never knew if your letter was going to be in that pen or not. So, you know, you had, but, but it was sure as heck way for it not to be was not to write it. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's one thing I celebrated about what Ashira decided to do, you know, and there were so much, so much proof in this pandemic of that, you know, for example, um, the best and worst of human agency, uh, we cleared the streets of some of the world's busiest cities. Remember those pictures? From early oh in the God, pandemic, yes. the empty streets of Paris yes. and, you know, Brussels and Berlin and New York City and Washington and Los Angeles, just empty of people. We did that, all of us, one at a time, said, okay, I'm not going out. And, that, and we ended up with empty streets. And dolphins. By and and same dolphins token, in the Hudson. And then, <laughs> the dolphins in the Hudson. And then by the same token, and this is, this is also kind of, we joke about this now, we also had empty shelves in supermarkets. People bought all the toilet paper, which I'm still not sure we have figured out why we did that. <laughs>
0: but, but we yeah. did that.
1: So we emptied streets and that was the best of our nature. And we emptied shelves of food and toilet paper and you and, know, and, you know people were some people were left without while others had. And that was the worst of the effect of our agency. And I and I hope then we had all the scientists telling us how much our carbon emissions dipped during that period that we were yes. locked down we can change our behavior overnight and those changes do add up and people have seemed to have stopped believing that we stop believing that and when we stop believing that we stop doing anything about any of it mm. and that's one of the things i'm trying to champion how much we can do if we decide to and if we take action Unfortunately, for better and worse. Yep. If we imagine, if each of us found a a way each day to do something for better, imagine if you know, like what happened to me when I was leaving dinner the other night. Someone overheard my discussion about the Lewiston shooting,
0: Mm. and
1: all of a sudden I was in a in a in a very. I was determined to have a respectful and open minded conversation with someone who has assault weapons and refuses to back any kind of ban (laughs) on assault weapons, and I. And he, the look in his eyes when he found himself having a, a real and sincere conversation with someone he sensed very strongly disagreed with him, but was standing there listening and listening respectfully, not waiting for her turn to speak, he was shocked. And maybe that little surprise that my willingness to have a conversation with someone I disagreed with, maybe that you know, made him a little less defensive in another conversation in his life. Yeah. Maybe that made him a little more willing to engage with someone. That is how we break down the barriers between us. Yeah. And that is one of the reasons I believe we are not as divided as we're being told. We're choosing to stop ourselves at division. Yeah. That is a very, very big difference.
0: Yeah. And like you said, that agency can be positive and also negative. Um, your Mm -hmm. book is optimistic, but it's not Panglossian. So you weave other social environmental crises that we experienced in 2020 and still experience. So there's climate change, there's mental health issues linked to mass shootings, uh, access to affordable health care, domestic violence, reproductive rights, police brutality, racism, racism, cost of living, opioid addiction. I mean, it's, And and in fact, it's just kind of getting worse, right? So 2023 was the hottest year on record and we've had the most mass shootings and Maine's uh, uh, deadliest shooting, um, I think, to date. Mm -hmm. Uh, And hopefully Mm -hmm. that statistic will not change. Um, But I wonder what makes the public crises? I mean, are we just living in perpetual crises or is that what the media wants us to think? When is a social issue a crisis? Because the pandemic was exacerbated and exacerbated these social issues. And you can see that clearly in your book and how Governor Mills had to deal with them as well. Um, but they're still there.
1: That's a really good question to think about on the fly. I mean, I would, I would want to think about that more carefully was to give you a complete answer, but I can give you a couple of answers that come to mind immediately. One, I hope is obvious, if lives are being lost, that's a crisis. If you have a great potential for a great number of lives to be lost, I mean, wh- one life being lost is, is tragic. Um, but especially in the case of a pandemic where we knew from the start that we had the great potential for mass casualties. That's, even if we don't know that's going to happen, that does present a public crisis. Mm. Um, I think what's interesting is to consider the how do you act when there is the risk of a public crisis? How do you act to prevent them from becoming crises? Yeah, that's I think what we were really facing here. We had to figure it out as we went along, but we did know because we had the example of the Spanish flu. We did know that there was the risk of of widespread rapid transmission of a potentially fatal, very contagious disease. Yeah, that's a very clear, very high potential for a public crisis. Um, You know, as far as I mean, I'm interested in your question. uh, What do we what do we have to gain from considering what makes the public crisis?
0: The thing that has piqued my interest is how um, they're interconnected. Um, and so mass shootings are connected to mental health, are connected to mm-hmm. I see what you're the saying. lack of affordable health care, are connected to rising cost of living, are connected to uh, inequalities in education, are connected to
1: so. Around the corner from where I'm sitting right now is a very large piece of paper that has. Uh, Uh, a picture of what you just described. I've been making a visual representation of the challenges we're facing. Um, There's not a lot of positive stuff on there. It's the challenges we're facing so that I can try and understand how they're all connected. And it, it started with just sort of, if it was a huge problem that was spreading fast, I would represent that as a big box with the word in the middle, like technology with black clouds all around it. And then I found myself drawing lines from that to this and this to that and war to religion and religion to the lack of moral clarity and this, this general feeling of helplessness and that too much is changing about being alive right now all at once. Mm. And that seems to be what it all comes back to. Uh, but it's a really interesting, I, I'll send you a picture of it. No, we'd love <laughs> to, it I would your love website. to see it. It's, It's kind of crazy to look at, but I think that that's what it feels like inside our bodies and our minds. It sort of feels like, I don't know where to start. One thing leads to another. And, you know, you look at the web in Maine, you have, uh, let's just look at one thing that people think about when they think about Maine. They think about lobster. We have this (laughs) beautiful heritage industry of lobstering. Yeah. Uh, where people are the cowboys of the sea, as one lobsterman put it to me the other day. Um, and that way of life uh, um, faces grave threats in the form of climate change um, because the Gulf of Maine, the waters of the Gulf of Maine are warming faster than any other body on the planet. So then you have an existential threat to a centuries-old way of life. Uh, you also have within that way of life, it's, um, it's a job that you've got to sort of be a young person to do and it takes a real toll on your body. So you end up in this state. We have a serious um op- opioid epidemic for the treatment of pain mm. and how a lot of addiction developed around that tied to those professions of fishing commercial fishing and lobstering and construction jobs and logging jobs physically demanding jobs then you have opioid uh, abuse it's an epidemic in this country and especially in maine and then you have that tied to a feeling of helplessness and of poverty and of debt and you, i mean it all it's it, Follow it for you you end up like I'm doing, following it from one thing to the next. Domestic violence comes out of that. And then you have broken homes, and then you have children of broken homes. And how does that affect the teachers' jobs in the school? It's a lot. It's a lot. People are feeling like it's a lot because it is. Yeah. And this is why we need each other. Yeah. We need each other more than we've ever needed each other, I think. Mm -hmm. And and we're at each other's throats. That's a paradox. I can't understand. People are all we have, you know, and we, this is, we got to get each other through this one thing at a time, one issue at a time. I, that's the only answer I have, because it does feel like everything's a public crisis to your point. <laughs> it's all, Where do you and start? It's Imagine out. being president.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, um, in your book, Ashira's dad, and I don't know, maybe, did I just say this? I, I but, uh, when he's, when he, uh, he
1: yes, we talked about this earlier. Yeah, when he asked yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just yeah. when you were saying <laughs> that.
0: You know, we to mm-hmm. to get, I guess, regain our agency. We fight each other because we don't know how to fight these abstract concepts, and they're complicated, mm-hmm. right? Like climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, the wind farms, the lobster farmers mm-hmm. were upset with the wind farm because it
1: was yes. Oh, then we add that in. Yeah, right? even He's though climate fight, change. <laughs> is
0: an existential threat to their industry anyway. And so, I mean, even...
1: for people who don't know about this issue, let me just add, uh, um, Governor Mills has made it a priority of her administration to embrace uh, renewable sources of energy, in particular wind, because we're a a coastal state. Uh, But she she also very, very much appreciates the perspective of the fishermen who are concerned about the threat that even floating offshore wind farms pose to their way of life. And what's fascinating to me is there was all this backlash against her after she announced a moratorium on any more wind development and has had the fishermen's backs at, at almost every turn. In fact, I can't think of a turn where she didn't. So, and yet there still is this, this sort of knee-jerk opposition because it's, a, it's an uncertainty and a potential force of change. So yeah, I mean, again, adding to that whole web.
0: Yeah, because you have to. Uh, she understands there are competing interests, and one thing that I noticed uh, when she's uh, being criticized for ruining the economy, she's really. And I think I said in my notes, I still am on opportunism. I know it's a pejorative term, but I'm trying to. I'm not trying to use it in a pejorative way. I just don't know what you the, mean.
1: Optimism? Yeah, yeah. But when yeah. she
0: she takes the opportunity, so she found that um, Maine can do the swabs and. She's like, why can't we do that and um, help our economy that way? Oh, there's a shortage of ballot boxes. Well, why can't Maine do that? I love that because that's what we have to do. That that is looking after the economy. It's like, well, what can we do to help our economy and um, ensure that we stay relevant? She wasn't trying to close the economy at all. When she needed to to protect lives, she. Closed businesses or limited businesses, but she was throughout the book. She's looking where Maine can um,
1: can regain its uh, status. She was absolutely and, yeah. and trying to be innovative, and she uses those examples. Um, the example of the ballot drop boxes you just mentioned, she uses that as one of the one of the very positive things that came out of the pandemic: the connection and the ingenuity that we all applied, regardless of of ideology, to solving the problems that were coming up. In that case, holding uh, one of the most contentious elections in American history fairly, freely, safely and legally and having to talk about having a balanced interest. You know, a a voting booth, a polling place is a is a potential super spreader event, but it's also fundamental fundamental right of of American citizenship. So uh, how do I provide access? Well, she put out a quickie bid and a barbecue company said, "I could, you know, we can build that box. Oh, I, I skipped steps. She called a friend at a community college who designed her a prototype in, in one night. And then they put the bid out and the barbecue company said, we can manufacture those. And then they delivered them all over the state and they're still in those places. So it was the, it was the problem solving. She takes, she takes that same approach, as you said, to, to governance. Yeah. And trying to say, well, we don't we don't know the future of wind, but shouldn't we try to figure it out? You know, and then and unfortunately, there just is so much uh, quick knee jerk reaction and people don't people look at someone in power. And and I'm, I'm baffled the way that Janet was, too, by by um, by people who assume she somehow wanted to shut down the state. <laughs> Why on earth would what what an elected politician who's presumably going to run for re election do so it's just, it's just this thing that people almost don't realize that that's effectively what they're saying through their caustic opposition yeah that they think she wanted to do this and there's this is a really important and i'm glad this came up what one thing that's fundamental about human nature is something called willful blindness mm. it's also the, the title of a book that i've given away so many copies i can't even remember how many by a woman called uh, margaret heffernan and i included Uh, a mention of that in the book Um, willful blindness is part of human nature it's something we all do and have the potential to do Mm -hmm. and unfortunately it tends to have more I think probably more negative consequences for our society than positive you know sort of at the root of everything the human potential to ignore what's right in front of us because we don't want to see it and I think what you end up happening what you end up having happening is people are have backed themselves into those beliefs and it's really difficult to face them and say you might have been wrong and I'm not accusing just one side of this Mm. but I think that's where we are we're locked right now where you have a lot of people who have backed themselves into a set of beliefs that they might not be sure they still want to have but god they really don't want to admit they might have been wrong Mm. It's a really, really important thing for us to get past. I don't know how to help people do that. Apart from telling them to listen to each other again, I come back to us. Yeah. So listen with more compassion and not to trap each other in these, you know, intellectual Booby traps where you're having a conversation with someone you know might not ha- have the education you have or the opportunity you have, and you can't wait to prove them wrong and back them into this humiliating ideological hole. We have to stop doing that, or we're never going to get out of where we are. Yeah. And everybody has to be willing to admit it, too. So I, re- I recommend, in addition to, in other words, leadership, I, say <laughs> I, rec- I recommend that everybody read Margaret Heffernan's book. Because here's the thing about willful blindness if it can be willed, we can also stop doing it.
0: We can open our eyes. There's yeah.
1: so much hope. There's so much hope for us as a society. People are capable of profound good and extraordinary connection. And that is the, one of the greatest lessons of this pandemic. I guess that was two lessons.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that when we make that connection, it's not abstract. It's it's eye no, it's to not. eye, it's human to human. It's not I am ABC identity and you are XYZ identity and therefore we're on opposite sides. No, we're human. I think what we're losing and uh but can easily regain is as you said, the power to engage in a debate when we're um actually engaging and listening to the other person instead of just waiting for our turn so that we can um you know, rebut everything that they said, but don't actually listen or um, digest it. Because if if we don't listen and understand that other people might have um, valid concerns, even if we disagree, um, as uh, Governor Mills said in her speech when she was reelected, people might disagree on where we need to go, but that doesn't mean that we're stuck at a fork in the road. That we can uh, come together. And, um, and be stronger. And, and that's why I think this book is really, uh, quite pertinent because what we need to do is come together to grow, to heal and, um, and even in a way to be playful, I love that Governor Mills uh, said that Santa was, uh, a, he was exempt from travel restrictions. I thought that that was, it reminded yes. me actually of Prime Minister uh, Jacinda Ardern of uh, New Zealand when she said that the Easter Bunny and the Two Fairy were essential workers. So,
1: yeah, <laughs> uh, that's one of the greatest strengths of a great of a great leader is a sense of humor. And, and Governor Mills has that in spades. You know, I, I, one of the things after asked her where she thinks that came from, and she said she remembers having had a very serious surgery when she was only 15, she had her spine fused and was in a, for um, scoliosis and was in a cast from her neck to her hips. And she read a lot of books and she wrote a lot of jokes and, she, <laughs> and it serves her to this day. She's one of the funniest people I've ever met. So yes, the sense of, we have to, we have to approach life with a sense of humor. I think it's critical. And to the point you just made, I thought a lot about this, you know, when we engage with someone who believes something different to what we believe, there's something about the differences that feels harder, you know, and if it's, if it's that a person is staunchly opposed to abortion and you're staunchly in favor of abortion, how could you ever possibly find common ground? And yet... If you didn't know that about that person and that person was on the side of the road changing their tire in the dark in a snowstorm, you know, or actually we're not supposed to really stop and help and do that kind of thing anymore. But like, I don't know, say a lady comes out of a grocery store and drops an entire you know, bag full of cans on the ground. Are you going to help her or are you going to, oh, that person anti abortion, I'm not going to help her? Mm. I, so I don't, those two things kind of, I don't know how we get from one to the other. Do we, do we, do we stop having, conversations about one another's politics. Well, that's kind of happened, you know, and it's interesting because people are connecting again because of that. And maybe that's one way forward. I don't know. I mean, you'd, you'd mentioned that like, how do we get past it? I'm not sure. But I know one way is if you're talking, you're not learning anything.
0: Mm.
1: And, mm. and what's the point if you're not learning anything, what, what are you doing there? You just got to hold your own beliefs and never question them, never turn them over never allow for the potential to evolve. Never. Never, un- never go beneath why that person might hold that belief. What's their story? They were a child once. What happened if they ended up with that belief? When we stop seeing one another as fellow humans, that's another force of for division. That's another place we stop ourselves. Yeah. We are fellow humans.
0: And there's been a, obviously a lot of injustice uh, in the world and continuing injustice. Um, and I find that a lot of people uh, that, I've spoken to have uh, put people into camps where I'm not listening to them because they're privileged and they're part of this historic privilege. And I think that that's alienating and um, also kind of ironic because if you are for uh, democracy and inclusion and justice, then you should include everyone. But then again, if there's somebody that has a view that denies your very existence, how do you have a respectable debate with them? So that's. Um...
1: I don't know. I don't. I don't want it to sound like I uh, there aren't certain like like that's a great example of something that I think is intractable. Yeah. And bigotry and hate are very very strong forces and they have been throughout human existence. That's a tough one. That's a really tough one. I think you have to believe that most people are fundamentally good, which I do. If that's not. Blaringly obvious.
0: Yeah, and, and I do find that um, a lot of people that hold um, bigoted beliefs hold them abstractly, that it's actually an abstract proposition, and that means they're malleable.
1: Because they don't know anyone who, right, for example, homophobia, that person doesn't know someone who's gay or love someone who's exactly. gay. Exactly.
0: Or- and I'm not saying that that's 100% um, what happens, but uh, I do think that in in most cases, it's an abstract proposition we love people who we know and we if we have uh any hate in our hearts it's it's really because we've abstracted the person we're not looking at them eye to eye it's not a
1: there's a lot of that there's a lot of bad but there's so much good
0: I mean, yeah, oh, we just God. had that Trump rally with the whole MAGA thing. And by the way, the Make America Great Again, that's actually a good slogan because for, for immigration because that's what immigration does. It makes America great again and again and
1: again. This is the country of immigrants. Well, again, I wrote, I wrote this book to celebrate what we stand to lose. And, um, and I think human connection is a really important thing to celebrate. So, you know, I come back to that again, that that a celebration is the greatest form of admonition.
0: Yes. And you came back to Silent Spring and I've indulged so much in your time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, I, again, recommend that everyone reads, in other words, Leadership, um, which I will link to on the episode page. Um, And coming back to Silent Spring, it ends with a fork in the road. And we, we have the power to choose.
1: Isn't that a great ending? Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I, I, I hope that we choose the right way. And you know what? I have faith in that.
1: I do too. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote Jack Kennedy in saying, the first one, in saying uh, that I'm an idealist without illusions. And so I, I believe that too about human beings. I believe that too. Great in our potential. I just was at a, um, at a holiday sort of poetry carol singing service the other day, and my contribution was a Tennyson poem uh, called Ring. It was sort of a, an elegy, and uh, he talks about the ringing out of the wild bells at this time of year, and, and, and um, it's a fundamentally hopeful poem about the future and the future of human existence, and I would encourage people to go have a look at it because it talks about the push and pull of life, Life is dark, but it's also light. There's joy, but there's also tragedy. That is what it is to be alive, the good and the bad. But I fundamentally believe humanity has continued to prevail because most of us are good. And uh, it's a work in progress.
0: Yeah. And if we uh, believe that other people... Are good and have good intentions, uh, that fuels the good intention inside of us. It fortifies us. If uh, it does nothing else, it does that. And so um, I would rather look on the uh, good of humanity and work towards
1: that than give up because it is a beautiful I would too. I would too. I think a lot of people are tired of being angry. Um, they're tired of being divided or told they're divided, whichever one it is. Um, I think they're tired of feeling Such sort of all consuming, kind of stiffening rage about so many things. People are tired. And maybe we've burned through a lot of anger and we'll start to find our capacity for compassion again. I hope we do.
0: Me too. Thank you so much, Shannon. Uh, Thank you for your book. And thank you for uh, discussing these pertinent
1: issues with me. You're most welcome. Thank you for letting me rant. And thank you so much for helping expand the reach of this incredibly positive and inspiring story.
0: I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue,
1: please go to our website, thegravity.fm.